you would, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we will continue our exposition of Paul's epistle, looking this morning to verses 29 through 34, which read, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Lord God, again, I ask that you would steady our minds and hearts, grab hold of our attention, that we would have ears to hear, and please grant me the grace to communicate your truth by Holy Spirit power. In Christ's name I ask, amen. A key tenet of the Christian faith is belief in the physical resurrection of the dead. Throughout the centuries, believers have confidently stated with the Apostles' Creed that I believe in the resurrection of the body as well as the Nicene Creed, that I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, the living scriptures, of course, provide the basis for the Christian faith in the resurrection of the body. Now, among them, none is more important than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm known by its... um, Latin phrase, locus classicus. That is the most complete text on a certain subject. It is the classic text on the resurrection of the body. And this is the most extensive um, doctrinal treatise um, on the resurrection in all of Scripture. And what drives this 58-verse passage is false teaching that there is no physical resurrection from the dead, which is a frontal assault to the gospel, under which some in Corinth had been deceived. So Paul attacks the heresy head-on with logical implications if the dead are not raised. 
So he, he lays out some grim consequences of denying a literal physical resurrection on the last day. And the first is that not even Christ himself has been raised. Preaching is vain. Your faith is foolish. The apostles are false witnesses. You're still in your sins, and all who have died, trusting in God's promised Messiah, they're in hell. They've perished. Therefore, living this life trusting in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But now, verse 20, notice, to these doubters and deniers, fact of the matter is, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he follows up with a threefold um, announcement that Christ himself is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. He himself is the pledge. He is the guarantee that all the redeemed will be raised in like manner at his return. Now, Paul is showing that if Jesus was raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that is, believers whose bodies are in the grave, then that naturally implies latter fruits. Now, last time we looked at the um, eschatological realities of resurrection life, both Christ's and ours, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, which include his second coming, the consummation of Christ's kingdom, the final resurrection, and the eternal state. That is a new heaven and new earth. All of which, by way of reminder, are simultaneous events. While he now presently reigns. Notice verse 25. He must, notice, he must reign, that is in heaven, until his kingdom has conquered his enemies, and he returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and restore all things. And then he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Now here in verses 29 to 34, he speaks of the relationship between the future physical resurrection and this present Christian life. And notice... He provides three incentives related to the certain promises of a bodily resurrection of all Christian believers. The first, there's just three, okay, the first is that the promise of a future physical resurrection is the incentive for baptism. And from out of baptism flows evangelism. Secondly, Resurrection hope is incentive for self-sacrifice in ministry. In other words, without the resurrection, suffering for Christ would be foolish. And then thirdly, confident trust in the future resurrection is incentive for godliness. Godliness. So this section adds to Paul's argument that living for Christ here and now would be utterly meaningless if there were no resurrection of the dead. 
So Paul here is simply um, piling on to leave no stone unturned. If there were no resurrection, what meaning is there for Christian baptism? If there is no resurrection, what meaning is there for Christian evangelism? What meaning is there for Christian suffering? What meaning is there for Christian ethics? If there's no resurrection, we indeed should be pitied more than anyone else on the planet. Now, um, this portion of Scripture um, is often avoided by preachers because of verse 29. It's a bit obscure, um, and that is that, that no one knows for certain what it means. Look at it, verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them. Okay, this, this phrase, baptized for the dead, um, is one of the most disputed in the New Testament. Uh, we cannot know for certain what Paul meant. Now, they knew, the Corinthians knew, or he would have explained himself. But it's only given here, nowhere else. There uh, are numerous views, to say the least, that have been suggested. And I will give uh, what I believe is the best view of this text as we work our way through, um, and I will argue that um, the resurrection, that is certainty of the resurrection, is the motivation, that is, it is the incentive for evangelism in context to the believer's baptism. It's kind of a two-in-one punch with regard to baptism. Now, although we cannot be um, overly dogmatic um, about what it means, we can be dogmatic about what it does not mean. And as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we do know that verse 29 does not refer to a doctrine of proxy baptism. That is a heretical belief that some Gnostics practiced early on in church history, and other heretic, heretics like the, the Marcionites um, of the second century. Now today, um, this false doctrine is practiced by Mormons, um, deceived as Joseph Smith was um, by uh, a, what he called an angel by the name of Moroni, which was Satan masquerading as an angel of light. Uh, Mormons practice the heretical act of vicarious baptism. That is, being baptized on behalf of those who have died, um, having not been baptized themselves. And they use this verse um, as their proof text, hoping to bring salvation to the deceased. Now, nowhere in Scripture is there such a thing as vicarious baptism. Nowhere in Scripture is there such a thing as taking the Lord's Supper uh, by proxy or of vicarious faith. Now, one of the numerous heresies of Catholicism, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, um, is called implicit faith. That is, you don't have to understand it. The church understands it for you. You just need to trust the church implicitly. That is vicarious faith. 
Another Catholic heresy is that you can do certain things in your life by way of good works that have a vicarious effect on somebody who's already dead and stuck in purgatory, which does not exist. Another heresy. Or wearing scapulars from Mother Mary to help you receive grace. These leather pouches or that you wear around your neck and shoulders. Um, they also believe in baptismal regeneration, heresy, just one heresy after another. And, and while it's astonishing to me how Satan can counterfeit biblical truth, what's more astonishing is how incredibly gullible people are who buy into it. Scripture is clear. Salvation comes by way of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. No external act is necessary. But is always by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus, who is the Christ. So, that being said, if personal baptism while you are alive does not save anyone, Vicarious baptism for the dead certainly won't save anyone. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 is clear. It is appointed for men to die once. And then comes the judgment. It's an appointment. Appointed to die once. So while there's no explanation given here, um, some conclude that there were believers being baptized on behalf of the dead, and Paul, the apostle, is merely describing, he's not prescribing some kind of baptism for the dead. So they presume Paul to be saying, it makes no sense for you Corinthians to be baptized on behalf of dead people if there is no bodily resurrection. But as John Calvin argues... He says, quote, after reproving almost all their faults, would he have remained silent on this one? Not a single word in reference to such a base profanation of baptism, which was a much more grievous fault, end of quote. Now, it seems unlikely that Paul would pass over um, w without comment a practice that, that Gordon Fee says smacks of a magical view of sacramentalism of the worst kind. Um, another commentator, um, Linsky, a Lutheran, he believed that Paul is talking about the normal godly practice of Christian baptism, okay? Explaining baptized for the dead as those being baptized as they were facing, for whatever reason imminent death, and not some superstitious practice, end of quote. So, the, on behalf of the dead is not referring to a third party, but to the subject. That is, those who are being baptized, it would be paraphrased as follows, otherwise, what do those hope to achieve who are baptized for their dying bodies? If the completely dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for themselves as corpses? Now, 
That little preposition for, for the dead, can also be translated because of, or with a view toward, okay, indicating motive. In other words, baptized for the dead is not to be understood in place of the dead, but they are baptized with the motivation of the dead. That is, with a view towards their own death. So those having heard the gospel, believing it, are baptized because they themselves will become part of the dead who will inevitably be raised, not unlike Christ. And keep in mind, beloved, that the term the dead, the dead, has been used seven times up to this point in chapter 15. So their motive is not on behalf of, but because of the group of the dead to whom they will someday belong. And when they die, they enter into heaven, the intermediate state, that is believers in the presence of God, whose bodies are awaiting, if you will, resurrection. You can think of it like this. You're driving down the road, and you see a large cemetery. When I was a kid, our dad used to take us on drives in the country. Load up the kids, mom and dad up front, we'd be driving, we'd go to little towns, and um, you inevitably pass by cemeteries. So anytime we would pass by one, um, dad would say, hey kids, guess how many dead people are in that graveyard? We would say, how many? He'd say, all of them. They're all dead. And, and really, you're reminded that, okay, that, that, that's, that represents the city of the dead. And one day, I'm going to be part of that population. And I'm reminded, hopefully, I need to be made right with God to, to believe and then as a result, be baptized, identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the theology of baptism in the New Testament is centered in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 6 sets forth clearly that our baptism is a picture of our unity with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Look there. Romans 6, look at verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that is why we do immersion here. It pictures in the clearest way the believer dying and, and being buried with Christ, going under the water, representing our unity and identity with him as our divine dying Savior, who did not remain in the grave. And neither do we remain under the water. We rise up again just as Christ 
came out of the grave, right, signifying his resurrection as well as our own. So being baptized is to testify of one's faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, believing by the grace of God that we will participate in the benefits of Christ's resurrection, not only spiritually, beloved, but physically. Physically. So if their whole baptismal testimony is the argument, I believe, if their whole baptismal testimony testimony is is faith in the resurrection and there isn't a resurrection what account is there to make there isn't one baptism then is a meaningless ordinance if there is no resurrection of the dead all it is is a picture of man's fantasies Look at Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So baptism in water is an outward testimony of that reality. It is that salvific certainty that is declared publicly. So the resurrection that's testified in baptism, is motivation, is incentive for evangelism. This is my two-in-one argument. He's referring to baptism of those who will enter death, their body will die, that is. They will go be with the Lord, and their body will one day be raised again. So Paul, all that to say, Paul may also be talking about uh, the powerful testimony of departed believers. The testimony that they have had um, on, on other people. And again, baptism is, is, is an outward sign, a testimony of our identity in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So a possible translation would be as follows, quote, Otherwise, what will those do who are being saved because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they being saved because of them? That is, of their testimony. Others are becoming believers because of the testimony of the dead, departed saints. You know, the Lord sometimes uses um, as a means of his grace... That is to save sinners through the testimony of other believers who served him so faithfully while they were here. Those who had a profound impact while they lived. They're now the dead. Whose spirits are with the Lord, bodies are in the grave. So, while they were alive, you you, you may have observe their lives, their their confident trust, their contentment in life, and their commitment to follow Christ. You heard them proclaim for years the fact that you were a great sinner, and Christ is even a greater Savior. So their, their incentive for evangelism was the certainty of resurrection life. You heard it, you saw them, but but you pushed them off 
You tried to ignore it until your believing spouse died. Until your believing parent died or your believing sibling or friend died, having testified so faithfully to the finished work of Jesus Christ and the glorious hope of resurrection life. Causing you to look at your own finiteness and perhaps longing in your heart to see them again. Um, If there is no resurrection, how do we explain those being saved through the testimony of those who serve Christ so faithfully? The dead. Those who will receive glorified bodies on the last day. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there is no gospel, there is no baptism. Um, It's meaningless is, is, is regards an ordinance, which means their testimony means nothing, so why evangelize? That's the argument. That's what I believe he's talking about as far as the dead are concerned. This is not baptism by proxy. There is a resurrection, so baptism matters. There is a resurrection, so the testimony of the dead matters. Incentive number two, notice. Certainty of the resurrection of the dead is incentive for self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice in ministry. That is, in other words, to suffer for for the name of Christ. Verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? Paul says, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, or if if there is no future, why endure Christian suffering? Gospel resurrection preaching only brings about great hostility. Why declare it if it's not true? Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's the hope. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. So because of the certain hope of resurrection, of future life, of future reward, of future glory, think about how Paul describes faithfulness of the Christian. Some metaphors he uses is that of a good soldier, a hardworking farmer, a fighter, a warrior, an athlete who suffers for the hope of victory. I mean, what gave Paul, what, what gave the apostles, what, what gave you know, countless persecuted Christians hope and courage in the face of such danger? It's the knowledge of the resurrection yet to come. Future glory 
in a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Now, we know from the book of Acts that Paul faced danger and death every time he entered a new city, right? There were angry Jews threatened to kill him. Riots broke out because of his preaching. And then you had Roman authorities who who want to keep the peace, who see Paul as a rabble rouser, a troublemaker. And he says here, look, I die daily. By the way, I die daily has nothing to do with a deeper spiritual life. Books have been written about it. That's not what he means. He's talking about suffering physically for the gospel. Death is my daily companion, he says. I am at death's door every day for the sake of Christ. It, death, is my constant companion. I die daily. I mean, this brother faced countless enemies who would just as soon as uh, would have wanted to slit his throat or crush his skull. He risked danger, persecution, preaching the gospel, not because Christianity um, offers people a nice way to live or because it makes people more moral or it provides a crutch of higher power hope. You can go to AA and get that. Go create your own deity is your crutch. That's not why Paul preached. That's not why he faced peril. Paul risks danger because all of Christianity's claims are true, confirmed by the fact that Jesus Christ has been been raised bodily from the dead with over 500 eyewitness accounts. I mean, Paul had seen him with his own eyes. Remember, he was blinded for three days, met by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He said, I die daily declaring his truth. Now, we'll never suffer like the Apostle Paul for the gospel. Nobody has. You know, we've been privileged to live in, well, what is now really the remnants of a Christian culture. Yet it is not difficult to see the rising tide of opposition against those who name the name of Christ, unless you're blind, spiritually speaking. What we're living, friends, is not a fable. We're living out truth. Rooted, centered, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We have a ministry to advance his kingdom on this earth. And I'll tell you that those who teach the Bible, churches, true churches that teach the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we teach it as God's word, we teach it as absolute truth, I will tell you, hostility is rising. Make no mistake about that. 
And persecution is the expression of the hostility of the unconverted. Unconverted sinners, hostility toward God, and you as his representative are the ones that they will want to heap reproach and scorn upon. It's inevitable. That's the kind of danger, the kind of peril that Paul's talking about. Why, if there is no resurrection, would I suffer this in naming Christ? And I'll tell you, unless the Lord chooses to reverse the course that we see right now, um, we too shall see increased suffering. So, if there is no resurrection of the dead, you'd better bail out now in order to avoid it all. It won't be long before the tares are exposed as tares, and they'll blow away, those with a false profession of faith. And the wheat will be crushed. Now, whether we die as Christians of sickness, disaster, old age, killed at the hands of another, the result of our service will be forever. Therefore, we can endure suffering for today. If there's no resurrection, forget it. Suffer for Christ? You've got to be an idiot. That's what he's saying. So in the midst of suffering, notice Paul, he goes on, he boasts about and he glories in what Jesus Christ has done among the Corinthians, of all people, willing as Paul was to lay down his life in bringing them the gospel. Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? Now, here Paul is probably, I'm speaking metaphorically, because as a Roman citizen, he would not have been made to fight with wild animals as part of um, gladiator entertainment. And besides that, th those who were thrown to beasts did not survive. So more than likely, Paul is referring to the events um, described in Acts chapter 19, where we read, there arose no little disturbance, that is an Ephesus, and a great riot ensued. And there we see the vicious nature of the enemies of Paul who behaved like wild beasts. I think that's what Paul is referring to. So if there isn't a resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, what human motive would drive me, okay, what profit would there be to endure hostility equivalent to facing wild beasts? Look, I die daily. Because there is a resurrection of the dead. In Christ, death has been swallowed up in victory. So to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that body will one day be raised up, not unlike our Lord's. You know, well, God 
has set eternity in the heart of all mankind. God has set eternity in the heart of all mankind. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. For those outside of Christ, friends, death stalks them like a shadow. They have no desire to pass from this life to the next, knowing deep down that God exists, that is the one before whom they will give an account. They know it, but they try to ignore it. And although they suppress the inevitable, I'll tell you what, I have heard the frightening screams of unbelievers nearing death. Death just looms over them. And it's almost as though they've been solidified in their unbelief, and they can't believe. I've given the gospel to people on their deathbed. They reject it. Desperately screaming, trying to hold on to life in those final moments to no avail. It's a horrifying scene and sound, I'll tell you that. When death is at the door, even the proud, self-professed atheist knows who's on the other side. Make no mistake about it. But for the Christian, death has no victory. We'll see later on in chapter 15, it has no sting. So this is the reason Paul was fearless, able to put his life in jeopardy every day for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, to see sinners saved and God glorified. Paul now, notice, he presses this point home to its logical conclusion, verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Resurrection, you see, means endless hope. No resurrection means a hopeless end. And hopelessness breeds dissipation, debauchery. Cynical fatalism says, go for the gusto, live it up while you can. Now, remember the context of this. Paul is quoting Isaiah 22, verse 13. And remember the context. Despite the threat of God's impending judgment upon his people due to their outrageous wickedness, instead of having an attitude of genuine repentance, they partied on. They partied on. Laughing and indulging in hedonism. And there we read, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, recent studies show that depression is on the rise among teenagers and millennials, along with drug and suicide death. Of course there is. You know, you, you look around and you ask, is this all there is? Am I merely an evolved germ? That's it? No purpose, no reason, what, no creator, let alone a redeemer. It's just toil and suffering under the sun, right? It's Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity as we toil under the S-U-N, sun. And unless you're graced to look above the sun 
That's all it is. So eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But there is a resurrection of the dead. That's my incentive, says Paul, for suffering in ministry, suffering persecution. That's my incentive. Notice incentive number three. The resurrection of the dead is incentive for godliness. For godliness. Denying the resurrection corrupts godliness. Christian ethics, just throw them out the door. If there's no resurrection, why live a holy life? You're a fool. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, he's quoting a proverb here from some Greek play, playwright. I think it's 4th century B.C. By this time, it become a cliche. Paul uses it to show that at the root, if people have no moral anchor in life, they're completely adrift with no basis for that which is right and wrong. I mean, just look at the present condition of our culture. It's, it's lunatic fringe. What do you see? A lot of bad ideas, an awful lot of bad behavior, and a lot of depraved movements. Movements, make no mistake about it. They're depraved. They're corrupt. And these kind of corrupt movements are spreading because of a pressure to conform. And I hear Christians conforming to bad ideas. You know, conformity can be a strong influence for good, amen? But more times than not, it is a powerful influence for evil. You've heard the saying, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. You have a basket of spoiled apples, you think throwing a couple good apples in there are going to make bad ones crisp and good? No. Of course not. Young people, listen. Eventually, as you grow, you're going to have friends that are not believers, acquaintances at least, and your peers will mock your professed faith in Jesus Christ as unsophisticated ideas. Guaranteed it's going to happen. So in order to gain their approval, the temptation for you, young people, will be to, to, to do and to speak and act as they do. That all has to do with worldview issues. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happens when we die? Conformity is a sign of individual weakness. We see it everywhere. The result, you live as you believe. Don't bow. Pray for strength of God the Holy Spirit to strengthen you to embrace the truth, the gospel. We'll find out sooner or later if your professed faith is merely professed or a faith that you are possessed by God the Holy Spirit. And I pray for every one of you that you're possessed by the Spirit and you're not merely 
ones who profess faith that's not true because you will be tested. You will be tested. Now, obviously, the Corinthians had been deceived because heresy is contagious. It always has been. It always will be. False teaching is deceptive and incredibly dangerous. So Paul is saying, he's saying, stop being deceived. Okay, Bad company, which includes company we keep, the associations we have, it can also refer to speech. Speech, communication that we listen to. When you sit yourself under bad teaching, you know it's bad teaching, it will corrupt how you think and how you live. Bad company corrupts good morals. It will corrupt you. If you move away from right doctrine, you will inevitably move away from right living. So this false teaching here in Corinth, circulating within the church there, had corrupted the body of Christ. He's the head of the body. The body's corrupt now. So we, we must never be indifferent to the issues of truth and sound doctrine. Your Christians talk, I don't want to know about doctrine. I just love Jesus. Well, which Jesus are you talking about? Doctrine. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought. Notice, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. This verse literally reads, sober up, stop sinning. Stop following this false teaching, which almost inevitably leads to sin. If there is no resurrection, then everything is permissible because nothing is absolute. That's what Paul is getting at. That's his point to these Corinthians. It was preached by a man years ago that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. He says, stop sinning. You're sitting under false doctrine. Stop it. Wake up. Sober up. Friends, this is the reason that we are called to contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We read in the book of Jude. To take a stand against all false gospels. The social justice gospel you're hearing about is a false gospel. Liberalism, being adopted into churches, is false doctrine. Ecumenicalism, let's just join hands with anyone who says the name Jesus and declare that we're one. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't be deceived, wake up. Because the souls of men, women, and children are at stake. So what we do here in preaching the whole counsel of God is a strategy, friends, of war against error. Constant battles against 
false doctrine. This is why we're always on guard at this church. In every church, what do you have? Sheep. Sheep dogs. And wolves in sheep's clothing. Sheep dogs protect the sheep. That's a sheep dog's job. Pastors, elders, we have deacons. We're, we're, we're sheep dogs to protect the flock. When a wolf appears, we kill it. When a snake slithers in, we stomp on its head and we make no apologies about it. Because scripture is clear. Look at Titus. This is Paul's instruction to Pastor Titus. Verse 10, chapter 3. Reject the factious man. Herodicus, in other words, heretic, factious. After a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. That is, he's perverted, he takes the truth and he twists it. We've had truth twisters enter into this church. And they're gone. If you happen to be watching and you're one who thinks that you see a crack in the door, you're not part of this church, but you're thinking about becoming part of it, but you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, we will sniff you out. It's a preemptive strike before we gather together again. Take heed. Look at Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Did you see that? Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So much of American evangelicalism today is filled with the ignorant and unsuspecting. Why is that? Because they're untaught. They go to popular churches with popular so-called pastors, and let me tell you this, popular seldom means sound. Popular seldom means God-honoring. Sometimes I'll listen to some half-witted, doctrinally that is, pastor being interviewed by some pagan on TV, and when he's done, the pagan says, boy, I'd like to visit your church someday. Well, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Beware when all men speak well of you. Beware. You know, churches today embracing liberal theology don't sit under the teaching, don't even visit, or the charismatic nonsense that goes on with this Bethel movement out of Redding, California, that people are being swallowed up by. Heresies, it's the blind leading the blind. Don't be fooled. Come out from among them. Paul says, stop sinning. You're sinning because you're sitting under false teaching. You're allowing yourself to take it in. Stop sinning, he says. He said, notice, I speak this to your shame. 
They should have been ashamed for allowing in their midst those who were teaching false doctrine, denying a physical resurrection of the dead. So I think what he's saying is that you have been listening to and adopting bad, bad theology. Make a break now. That's what I think he's saying. Because theology and practice go hand in hand. Bad company corrupts good morals. So, the denial, and to this day, when we think about those known as hyper-preterists who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, teaching that Jesus came back in 70 AD, mistaking his coming in judgment in bringing an end to Judaism with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, mistaken that for the second coming, that there is no physical resurrection to come. Heresy, to deny the physical resurrection of the dead, has a great effect on the Christian life. If there is no resurrection of the dead, it negates Christian baptism. Why be baptized? Why evangelize? If there is no resurrection of the dead, it makes Christian suffering foolish. If there is no resurrection of the dead, it corrupts godliness. Friends, you must guard your minds against falsehood. And in our day, you must guard yourself from being swept away by and into cultural conformity. You better test everything they say out there in light of the gospel. Or you'll be sinning. Conformity is the backdrop to the spread of serious, serious error and worldliness within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is so foundational to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1, look at it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That is to say, when you sit under heretical preaching, when you read the writings of heretics, you attend their seminars, your friends invite you, you know, you're a little, you know, they, 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 they argue perhaps that, you know, you're, you're too, 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 too caught up in doctrine. Sit under it. Paul says that's sin. If Christ's resurrection is a fact, as it is, then its consequences far outweigh the opinions, the preferences, and the prejudices of our culture against Christ and his church. So don't succumb. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes certain the future resurrection of the dead, and that fact is a knife, a knife pointed at the throat of our culture and of its belief system, which is nothing more than secular humanism. 
You're going to bow to that? Don't bite. Because Jesus Christ has been raised, all of God's promises are secured, your resurrection is certain, and therefore that fact ought to define our lives and the meaning of our lives now precisely because it defines, determines, and describes our future. So, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen? Christ has been raised, so we must be baptized. We must evangelize. We must suffer for the sake of Christ. And we must live by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, godly lives. There's no resurrection, throw it out the window. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you for the confident trust, the assurance we have in the resurrection to come because of the resurrection of our Lord. So Lord, take these truths and renew our minds, protect us that we would not be conformed to this world. For Christ's sake, Amen.